I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone who I find interesting from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and to speak to whomever I want. But, of course, with independence comes a lot of work and some insecurity. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so I can continue to do what I do. Please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. Thank you for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show... I'm speaking with Rob Trzinski, who is editor of the Trzinski Letter. He recently published an article called Cancelled, Welcome to Our World at Persuasion. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. My pleasure. Um, I'm going to be honest, I actually don't know that much about you, Um I, I read an article that you wrote for Persuasion that I really liked. And I also, um, and obviously I've, I looked you up on the internet. I know <laughs> how to do that much. Um, and I guess, I mean, like one of the things that I wanted to do on my channel is to sort of explore, um, well, different sort of things outside of my personal um box, I suppose. Um, I spent most of my life identifying as a feminist and a socialist. Um, I grew up in a, in a leftist household, um, with a feminist mother. Um, I grew up in an urban setting. So everyone I knew was also, you know, relatively leftist, like to the point where I thought that being a liberal meant being right wing, (laughs) but, um, I suppose, I mean, so do you identify as a conservative? Actually, I do not identify as a conservative. I identify as being on the right, but that's obviously a very loose and uh, undefined uh, affiliation. Uh, I identify myself as being a secular free marketer. So I come from this perspective of thinking of, of being an advocate of free markets being an advocate of freedom across the board, you know, the, the two pieces of wisdom I, I do take from conservatives are uh, one from Margaret Thatcher, who said freedom is indivisible, which is the idea that you can't say, oh, I'm for freedom and everything except for the economy. We're going to lock the economy completely down and regulate it completely. But you could be free everywhere else. Uh, I don't think that's tenable intellectually or practically. Uh, the other piece of wisdom I take, actually, that and this is relevant to the piece you you read of mine recently in Persuasion, which is it's, it's from Ronald Reagan from the speech that made him famous in America uh, in 1964. He gave a, a famous speech. It's called The Speech or The Time for Choosing Speech. And as a line in there that I really love, which, which is there is no such thing as a left or a right. There's only an up or down. And it's up to the maximum of freedom that's compatible with the rule of law or down to totalitarianism. And I think that's a piece of sort of wisdom that we need, which is the divisions between left and right, especially in America, can often be very unedifying. Uh, and uh, what we really need to think is define things in terms of liberal versus illiberal, you know, up, up and down, up to freedom or down to dictatorship. 
And then we can have debates about what freedom means and, and what is required for freedom, but that that is the way we think of the political alternatives. Yeah, I mean, I would actually tend to agree with you. I've lately started to feel like the terms left and right are not particularly useful um, and don't really seem to mean anything cohesive. I wonder, though, I mean, what do you think are the fundamental fundamental differences between left or right? Or do you, are you just entirely rejecting those categories? Well, I, I, the left and right refers to something. I basically, it, it, you know, on that up and down spectrum, if you're up to the maximum amount of freedom and down to totalitarianism, well, you can go down to the left or down to the right is, the place, is basically how I would put it, which is that you can go you know, down to the left and say, we need to have a communist society and everything controlled by the government so that we can be for the workers. Or you could say, you know, we have a fascist society and have everything controlled by the government for the sake of the nation. Now, in practice, there's on those extremes, there's not a lot of difference. Uh, I teach my kids the difference. The main difference between communism and fascism is the shape of the mustache on the guy who kills you. Uh, but <laughs> big bushy mustache, that's a communist. Little skinny mustache, that's a fa- that's a fascist. Clearly. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's a somewhat flippant way of doing it. But it, now, on ter- as you go up there towards the more liberal end of things, there are two flavors of liberal. And this really is something I think that goes back to John Stuart Mill in the 19th century. Uh, I've just recently been re- rereading his book on liberty, very you know influential book. And he is the one who really made the distinction to say, well, free speech and personal freedom, your freedom to have, have experiments in living and uh, you know, uh, choose your personal lifestyle, that's really important. And we have to defend that uh, uh, on principle. Economic freedom is less important. It's more of a practical thing. Now, he was raised by James Mill, who was one of the great classical economists, one of the great free market economists. So he believed in free markets. But for him, it was, all oh, that's a practical thing and not a moral principle to having free markets. And so that created this sort of division where uh, you ended up with what are called sort of the classical liberals on, on the right, uh, and I would put myself in this category, of people who are in that pro-free market tradition, uh, who you know believe in, in free markets and economic freedom as being equally important with everything else. And then you have the sort of mill-style liberals, the more early 20th century liberals, uh, who say, no, you know, economic freedom is dispensable if we can come up with reasons, and boy, did they ever come up with reasons, to try to, to regulate the economy or to tax people. You know, we, can, we can have lots of controls on the economy, but we're still going to have the stuff that, James, that, that John Stuart Mill thought was important, you know, the personal freedom, the intellectual freedom, the freedom of speech, we're going to keep that. Now, I think historically what you can see is that turns out to be somewhat untenable because we are, you know, the, the, the old fashioned liberal that I'm talking about seems a little antique. Now, when I was a kid, which was not that recently, <laughs> when I was young, you know, the liberals we thought of as, Oh, you know, they're for free speech, but they're for regulation and economics. And now what you have is an increasing number of people on the left um, who are not for free speech. They're saying, well, there's all sorts of way to harm people with speech. So we should be able to regulate that too. And so I, you know, I thought it was interesting you mentioned that you thought of liberals as being on the right. And that that's something that I think a lot of conservatives don't get, which is that, you know, uh, among the, the the sort of more committed far left, the liberal liberal is a dirty word. You know, those are the uh, those are the sellouts. Yeah. Those are the, they're, they're practically considered conservatives. 
Yeah, those are the liberals are the ones who, you know, they're not they're not hardcore enough about their politics to to stay on the left. They kind of, you know, pussied out. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you in in you wrote that in recent years you've talked to a lot of traditional conservatives of the classical liberal bent who assumed right. that once Donald Trump was out of the office, um the old, this is a quote from your article, mainstream of reasonable conservatism would reassert itself. Um, I guess I'm wondering what what that means. You know, like what what is this traditional conservatism that these people thought or or hoped would would reassert itself or hope hope will reassert itself? I suppose. All right. So um, I, know you're, I know you're coming from a Canadian context, so you might not follow these things as much as we do. And, and I think the average person doesn't follow them as much as the political obsessives do. Mm-hmm. Um, what the dominant school of conservatism uh, in America for about basically for the whole half, second half of the 20th century uh, followed a, a pattern that, that was referred to as fusionism. Now, this was all sort of put together by um, – by uh, William F. Buckley in National Review. He started National Review in, I think, 1957. And it was sort of the center for this approach to conservatism. And it was called fusionism because the idea is that it took three different wings of the right and fused them together, tried to get them to cooperate. You know, every political movement, especially in a two-party system like we have in the U.S., every political system is an ideological coalition. Right. So in European parliamentary systems where you have, you know, if you have 10 percent of the vote, you can have a viable party. You tend to get, you know, the the ideological differences filter out to a bunch of small parties. And then the coalitions are political coalitions. You get the communists making a coalition with another coalition, you know, another party with the social Democrats. And, you know, that's how you get a majority. But in America, you know, we have two parties. It's Republicans and Democrats. So those parties tend to represent you know all the different ideological factions kind of get mashed together into one of those parties, more or less, or the other. So what the fusionist approach did is it said, okay, we have three different groups. We have the religious conservatives, and their goal is a revival of that old-time religion, and they want religion to dominate America. They want America to be a Christian nation again. Uh, and then you have the uh, uh the hawks, the uh, the anti in the mid twentieth century, this was the anti communists, the people who want us to be tough to stand up to the Soviet Union, because they want a strong national defense. And then you had the pre- the free marketers, you know, some more people like me, the people who 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 want to fight against the left because they want free markets, they want smaller government, they want lower taxes and less regulation, and that sort of thing. And so these are three different groups, and they had somewhat different priorities. You know, you could see that the free marketers would be a whole lot less interested in, you know, abortion or prayer in school and would be a lot more interested in tax rates and, and uh, you know, uh, abolishing regulatory agencies and, and things like that. Uh, whereas, you know, the religious people are going to have the, the, the priority of wanting to try to get the state back into promoting and supporting religious ideas. And this was sort of a, you know, it was, it was held together a lot by the, the threat of the Soviet Union and communism, right? Because the communists were atheists, so they were enemies of the religious people. Uh, they were the enemy, you know, for the Hawks, they were the enemy in the Cold War sort of strategic battles. They were an aggressive, uh, a competing power. And for the free marketers, of course, the communists were communists. They were the ultimate uh, uh, antipode to the free market. So you can see how they were all sort of, we're all sort of held together. And um, 
made to find common cause with each other by the idea of this common threat. Uh, now, as you know, that the left also has an ideological coalition of sorts, and you know it, it ranges from the people who think, "Well, communism is great," uh, to the to the people who want just sort of a a moderate sort of free market welfare state, the sort of more the the ones who would traditionally be called just liberal. So, uh, it's that coalition that I think has come apart in American politics that that fusionist coalition on the right. And Donald Trump was sort of the harbinger or the, the, the blow that shattered it apart. I think it was coming apart before him. I think he's more of a symptom than a cause. But it, it was, he sort of destroyed it. And part of the reason is because uh, the, the religious conservatives, the religious wing of the right, I think thinks that it lost out in this bargain. Right. They, they, I think they imagine now, this is the part that annoys me. They imagine that us free marketers have gotten everything we want. You know, we haven't, but they imagine, oh, you got tax cuts. We, well, yeah, we got a few tax cuts here and there. So you got tax cuts, you got free trade, you got a few other things. And what did we, the, the religious people, get? We didn't get anything out of this. We got gay marriage. We got, you know, all, everything's gone against them. And what really is behind this is there's sort of a, a literally a crisis of faith going on for the religious right in America in the sense that if you look at the figures over the last 15 or 20 years, if you look at the graphs of you know religious affiliation and people talking about their degree of religious belief, it kind of goes like, it goes down. It goes off a cliff, really. So I think they had this idea, we'll form this fusionist coalition and we'll get to promote some of our things and there'll be a religious revival in America. And instead of getting a religious revival, what you have is an increasingly secular country in America uh, where people are either, uh, there's a larger, a great increase in people who consider themselves agnostics or atheists who have no religious belief. Uh, we're still a small minority, but it's an increase. Uh, and there's a big increase in people who are sort of religiously unaffiliated. You know, they have a general belief in God, but they aren't really committed to religion. They're not going to be, you know, the, the basis for a religious revival in America. And now the, the crazy thing about it, though, is that these people who, who, who want to make America a Christian nation again, who want to revive religion, somehow settled on Donald Trump as their... Uh, as their hero, as their as their their warrior on their side, which is of course you know very strange to me because he is clearly a heathen. I mean, he is he has not lived his life <laughs> in any way as 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 a representative of Christian of any of anything I've ever been told was was Christian values. Uh, but there's a guy uh, I used to work with uh, named Ben Dominich who the funny thing he he's flipped to being pro-Trump because that was the prevailing direction of the winds on the right. But he had made, before that, he made a perceptive observation about it. He called it the post-apocalyptic culture war. So this is basically, you know, if you are fighting the culture war, on, if you're on the religious right and you're fighting the culture war with the goal of reviving Christianity, the idea was, you know, 50 years ago, the idea was if we don't pr protect Christianity the, it'll be the apocalypse. It'll be Sodom and Gomorrah. America will decay morally and become a godless nation. He says, well, if they, people look out now, and this was about five years ago, you know, circa 2015, they look out and they see, oh, well, gay marriage has been imposed by the Supreme Court. Uh, abortion is still legal. All the thing, you know, everything that they warned about, everything they were trying to fight against has, has, and, and, and religious belief is dropping off and we're an increasingly godless and secular country in America. You would think the apocalypse has already happened. 
And if you think the apocalypse has already happened, well, I don't know. If you've ever seen the Mad Max movies, you've probably seen the new Mad Max movies, maybe not the old ones. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, but, but basically, if you're if you're if the apocalypse has already come, you want who do you want on your side? You want Mad Max, right? You want the you want a guy with a I think uh, Ben called it a spiked bat to to club the opposition with. So you don't really care whether the guy who's your champion is is religious or has a good character or not. You just want the meanest, nastiest guy. And I think that's kind of the best explanation I can come up with for the Trump phenomenon. But in the process, I think what Trump did is he, he broke apart the fusionist coalition and he got a whole wing of the right, the sort of now nationalist wing, they call themselves to decide that the culture war is the only important thing to them. And that they, that the cause of freedom isn't really that important and free markets is especially not important. And so it has changed the American right in a fundamental way. And I don't think that's going to get glued back together anytime soon. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting analysis. I mean, I tend to like think that Trump is blamed for way too much. I mean, I know that there's a lot of people who believe that once Trump was gone, the other thing that would go would be cancel culture, you know, or at least it would be less kind of intense, like this kind of political Mm -hmm. polarization everything would calm down a bit. People would sort of feel less, um, I don't know, less worked up and therefore less inclined to, to cancel people they perceive as being a danger to their, their own status quo or their preferred worldview or whatever. What do you think about that? Well, yes, that's the other thing. As I said, I think a lot of people on the right have been sort of complacent in thinking once Trump's out of office, it'll all go back to, you know, I use George Will as my example, because he's a a famous American columnist who's very much in the classical liberal, almost sort of a libertarianish conservative uh, bend, uh, very much part of the old fusionist coalition. And, you know, we're going to go back to to that. And this is all going to calm down. I think there are a lot of liberals in America, you know, center left liberals who have been kind of thinking that once this, you know, this will calm down the left too. That once Trump's out of office uh, and we have a nice sort of centrist Democrat, Joe Biden in office, that that will calm down some of the counterculture thing. Cause you know, Trump did actually have this impact on the left. And I think it was that he, he kind of unhinged them in a strange way, which is that he's so thoroughly fulfilled all of their worst caricatures of the American right. Yeah. Right. Cause they said, Oh, American rights, they're racist. They're rich guys who don't care about the little person and just want tax cuts and special favors for the rich. And they're, they're misogynists. They're, you know, any, you tick down everything on, on the list. They're hypocrites, everything on the list. And Trump fulfills it all. And the problem is that then that makes them think, therefore, all opposition to us is thoroughly discredited as being horrible, rotten, uh, worthless people. And we should get our way completely on everything. So it kind of like it, 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 it encouraged them to think that all political opposition to us and all cultural opposition to us doesn't need to be taken seriously, can be dismissed, and they're all rotten people and need to be destroyed. And that sort of ramped up cancel culture. But I think you're right that too much of that is attributed to just Trump's influence. I think he did have an impact. But this was something that was happening before Trump. It was something that was sort of building up. I mean, it goes back to, like I said, when I when I was – in the 1980s and 1990s, there was that was the first time we started hearing the term political correctness. That was the old term for being woke. Uh, and this idea that, you know, you had to toe this far left uh, sort of party line or else you were the enemy. That is something that's been building for decades. 
and it comes from certain illiberal strains within the left. I think specifically it comes from uh, uh, Marxism filtered through postmodernism. And the specific idea that comes from Marxism through postmodernism and oftentimes called critical theory. So critical theory is something that was taken from, that's a, a phrase or term that was taken from Marx and then repurposed in postmodernism in somewhat different ways. But it's the basic idea that if somebody has an argument on the other side, somebody's opposed to you, they don't really mean that argument. It's not really an idea. It's just a legitimating ideology for oppression, right? So uh, right. Marx had this great <laughs> quote that I remember about the, uh, Marx had this quote about the base and the superstructure. So it says the real base of society is economic relations. The, the workers, the proletariat versus the, uh, versus the bourgeoisie, the workers versus the capitalists. That's the real base of life. Everything in life is determined by that. And all this stuff about ideas and religion and art and all that, that's just a superstructure built on top of that to legitimate and perpetuate the economic system. And what that does is it makes you know art, ideas, literature, all the intellectual aspects of life, it makes it seem false and fake and not worth taking seriously or having any respect for because it's just a way that the man keeps you down, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm laughing because that's that's how I've always thought. I mean, until recently, <laughs> like <laughs> I know that it's true. Like, so now I'm I'm the one selling at the left, right? I'm like, it's it's true, guys. Um, you know, but I I mean, I didn't. I it's it's more it's how I approached the world. You know, I didn't I didn't think it mm -hmm. through um, to the end, but I, you know, I did think that the other side, whoever I decided the other side was my political enemies, you know, they didn't really, they were a, they were just bad or, mm -hmm. you know, or they just didn't know any better. And if I could just explain my perspective to them, then they would under, like, they just didn't get it. They just didn't understand right. what the left was really about, what the left really wants. You know, they didn't understand what was good for them essentially. Um, and you you're right. Like it, I didn't, I didn't take right wing people seriously. I didn't take conservatives seriously. I just brushed them off as right wing or conservative, which is of course, you know, how the left continues to, to operate today. And, you know, Trump was a real gift to them. I actually think in many ways, because it allowed them to, like you say, I mean, you, you, you approach this in a slightly different way than I do. Um, I think that, Trump allowed them to reinforce what they were saying all along. So they were always saying, oh, the right is, you know, full of racists, white supremacists, misogynists. These are all terrible people, you know, and and now this guy proves it all. Um, we were right to have dismissed these people. We were right to have rejected these people. We're right to silence these people. Um, and we're good. They're bad. See, you know, Trump proof. Um <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, That's it, yeah. yeah, and I just, I mean, so I'm really frustrated now with the right. I mean, sorry, with the left because of that, that approach, you know, I don't think that it's very helpful to simply not understand what people are about or not take people seriously to not think, okay, maybe there's a good reason that people are right wing. Maybe there's a good reason even that people voted for Trump. Maybe there are good, rational, valid reasons that people are conservative, i.e. that people see things differently than you. It's not just that they're bad or they're stupid. 
Um, but I find that much of the left is just so they stubbornly refuse to acknowledge that's even a possibility. Yeah, and I think that uh, now I just said I recently I've been rereading John Stuart Mill, and, and one of the great points he makes um, about the need for tolerance and open mindedness and and free speech is that when you don't engage the arguments on the other side, you actually make your own case weaker. Yeah. That you're actually not engaging your own ideas uh, on a thorough a level if you don't look at the counter arguments against them, and if you don't look. I mean, you mentioned how. You know, this is the way you thought, but you never thought it out in explicit terms. And I find that to be the case a lot. Now, it's it's the case on the right, and that's part of the reason why we were vulnerable to Trump. But it's the case for on the left, too, that a lot of people on the left don't know the leftist sources, the intellectual sources of the left. Yeah. Uh, they just sort of, you know, especially if you grew up with it, you know, it was just something you absorbed and it was an attitude and a, a worldview that you you just sort of picked up from the people around you. And you never fully understood what all the arguments were and the basis for it and never had that moment of considering, is this, is this really true? Is this really, you know, what I, is it, is this really, are all the ideas behind this actually the, the correct ideas? Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I did read Marx um, and I read a lot of leftist theorists. I certainly read a lot of feminist theorists and continue to. Um, but I think that because I didn't read anything that challenged those texts, um, it did probably make my arguments weaker and and ensured that the ideology that I was pushing or supported wasn't necessarily solid you know we don't we don't engage in these kinds of debates so much anymore and we're not expected to and universities are really quite um quite biased in that way i mean you you're much more likely to read kind of more left-wing or more liberal at least texts than you are to read conservative or or right-wing texts um and i don't think it helps us out in terms of our arguments although it seems to have helped us out in terms of like winning the culture wars and dominating <laughs> media and social media <laughs> in a kind yeah, of Orwellian way. <laughs> in, in, in a way. Yeah. Well, I mean, cause one of the problems that happens is you have a lot of, uh, a lot of the media, it's a little sort of um, dirty little secret about the, the media is that a lot of it is fueled by young people a couple of years out of college. Yeah. And uh, and it's especially true, I think, in this era of digital media, where basically, you know, the idea of having a seasoned, you know, 50 year old reporter uh, being the main guy writing things is, you know, in a lot of the sort of clickbait online media, it's take a bunch of really cheap kids straight out of co- straight out of college, pumped full of and indoctrinated with a lot of these ideas and get them to turn out stuff to to uh, to mine the outrage of of the audience on Facebook or Twitter or wherever and and harvest the clicks and that really sort of biases it towards people who are still very steeped in whatever they were taught in college um and uh but you know the thing is i also find it interesting that so much of the energy goes into the culture war stuff now uh i was just having you know, thinking about this, ruminating about this, that there, I've been talking a lot with people recently, you know, especially after writing this article and before talking with people on the left and right and even some libertarians. And it's interesting. The amazing thing to me is that there is this broad sort of consensus actually that I would call sort of liberal free market welfare state. You know, so if you went to a whole bunch of people, you said, look, okay, 
I want we want to have a system that is going to be mostly a free market. We're going to have you know private companies and private ownership of you know you own your house, you own your car. We're not everything's not going to be centrally managed and run by the state. So it's basically going to be free market. But we're going to have a welfare state as a safety net. So we're going to have you know for old age, for the poor, etc. And in the culture, people are you're gen, you're going to be you know there's not going to be censorship. You're going to be generally left free to say whatever you like. If you could put that agenda, you know, most a huge majority of people would actually support that. And it's pretty much the system we have right now in the U.S. and different flavors of it in the U.S. versus Canada. And the amazing thing is that, you know, if people actually looked at it that way, you'd think that we would have no big bitter political battles because most people are sort of in this general consensus. I'm actually one of the as a critic of the welfare state, I'm one of the few people who's not entirely in that. Um, but, uh, so why are we having all these battles? Well, if you look, a lot of the battles are over these symbolic culture war things. And that was Trump's big sort of brainwave, his achievement, his genius, evil genius, so to speak. And what he did to the right is he realized that if I can just keep stirring up all this symbolic culture war stuff constantly all the time, I can keep my people fanatically devoted to me and I don't even actually have to do anything. So like a couple of his signature, I was criticizing him in this, a couple of his signature um, uh, agenda items were that he was going to create this national garden of American heroes. So he saw people tearing down sculptures in these riots last summer in American cities. He said, well, I'm, I'm in favor of sculptures of historical, of, of historical American heroes. So I'm going to create a garden of American heroes and we're going to have all these sculptures of great people from the past. Uh, from America's from America's history. Well, he never had funding. You know, he came out with this as an executive order to do it in uh, the middle of last, early last year. He never had funding for it. He never had a location for it. He had like a couple of guys scribbling away, writing a big proposal. <laughs> but, you know, it was something that he, he was pretty much f- fated to lose the election already by then. So it was sort of this vaporware thing where it's like, make a big stink about how I'm going to do this and make a big promises to your people, but never actually having to follow through on anything. Or similarly, um, he blocked this, uh, uh, he blocked TikTok, this Chinese social, Chinese owned social media company. He blocked them and said, oh, I'm going to force you to make a new deal and you have to make a partnership with an American company. And as part of the deal, he said, oh, and I'm going to get them to set aside a couple of billion dollars to finance patriotic education, which is going to be basically you know, education telling a story from a, a right of said a right wing perspective. Well, when they actually went to the company and said, "Did you agree to give a billion dollars, a couple billion dollars for this? Is this part of the deal?" They said, "We have no idea. We never heard of this." And you know, it was all just vaporware. It was uh, it was a lot of big promises with no follow through. But he sort of realized if I can keep people all you know at a fever pitch on the culture wars all the time. Basically, I can get all the old all the old people down in Florida to vote for me, and I can get you know the I can get the blue collar people and the baby boomers on Facebook. I can get them solidly on my side all the time and be fanatical about me because they see me as their champion. And it is in many ways done at the expense of actual policy and and actual reforms. Right. Um, so, and one of the like so in the the article that you wrote for persuasion one of the main points you were making was that um you know 
you're kind of like, welcome to cancel culture, liberals. Like, we've been here all along. <laughs> like, why weren't you paying attention? Now that it's affecting you, you're worried about it, but you weren't before. So I was, you know, a leftist and a feminist. I say that because, I, I like, I again, I'm not super attached to those labels anymore. And I'm, I'm pretty critical of the left. And I'm critical of many aspects of feminism as well. And I would just sort of prefer to not attach myself to any label. Um, but at the time, you know, I would have identified as a, as a socialist, um, and for sure a feminist. Um, and I was banned from Twitter for criticizing gender identity ideology. Um, so I guess I sort of get a bit like defensive when people say it only impacts the right, because I find that a lot of right-wing people, I'm not necessarily saying that you've done this. I'm not positive. Um, but a lot of right-wing people do say, you know, right-wing people are being censored. This never happens to anybody on the left. Like, I see people all online all the time saying, you know, give me the name of one leftist who's been, you know, censored, um, who's been kicked off social media. And I just want to be like, me, I was. <laughs> and I really needed social media or, you know, I really needed Twitter. I'm still on, I'm still on Instagram and Facebook and those things because I'm independent, you know, like I'm an independent writer. I'm an right. independent journalist. I produce all of my own media. Like everything is just me. I'm not, I don't, I'm not attached to the institution. Yeah. So I do really need these venues in order to kind of, you know, promote my work and to reach people and to reach interviewees and so on and so forth. Um, but I guess, I mean, maybe I'm, a, I'm just an anomaly, um, as, as somebody, and it, you know, this wasn't the first time that the left had tried to cancel me. You know, the left has been trying to cancel me for a really long time. And so have many feminists, ironically. Um, but I suppose, like, do you think that it really is a left and right divide? You know, do you think that the right is sort of being marginalized or silenced or, or picked on maybe more, more than left wingers are? Do you think that cancel, like, do you think that cancel culture is so yeah. ideologically or politically biased? Well, I, I would say that the right has been a target longer and more in a more thoroughgoing way. But I also want to say, you know, there has been this, recent sort of cottage industry of people on the right saying, look how I'm being silenced. They say while they're on cable TV promoting their book, <laughs> right? <laughs> while they're on Fox News. <laughs> yeah, exactly. While, while you're on Fox promoting your book, you talk about how silenced you are. Yeah. Right. So there's a, it's become sort of a, we call it a grift down here. Uh, uh, it's become kind of a, a scam, a con uh, to claim you're being canceled. But what I will say is, it, it, when I, in my history on it, it was more that uh, you put it this way: people on the right have learned to self-censor a little bit more, and you know, in the workplace or in the schools, to to not come out with who you are and what you believe as as readily because you think you're going to be punished for it. Or in my case, you know that that wanting to become a columnist at the New York Times was not, or 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 you know one. Sort of the mainstream institutions that were dominated by uh, left of center people, it was like you thought, well, the chance, you know, you, you tended to go off and build a career elsewhere and do other things because you knew that those venues weren't going to be as open and welcoming to you. Right. I mean, I for there were a number of reasons why I originally wanted to be an academic philosopher. There's a number of reasons I wanted, I didn't do that. Um, 
but one of them was that I, you know, one of the things in retrospect is that I have a feeling if I were at a university now, there'd be a permanent protest encampment outside my office. Uh, Right. <laughs> you know, that, that I would be, uh, you know, the guy saying the controversial and, and un, un, uh, unapproved things all the time. Uh, so I think that it's something that simply that we've dealt with in a more explicit way longer, whereas I think there are more people on the left who imagine that, look, I'm I'm in the mainstream. Everybody loves my views. I'm tolerant and open minded and I'm one of the good liberals. And therefore, this won't touch me. And they were a little dismissive about it. And uh, I think one of the, you know it was in the last year or two years, especially uh, that that they've begun to see that. I think one of the dividing lines was when they went after J.K. Rowling, right? So we went from it appeared a couple of years we went from the idea that you know we used to sort of on Twitter make this joke of read another book because uh, <laughs> left to center people on Twitter were using the Harry Potter books constantly, you know, for these sort of overwrought analogies. And, you know, Trump is Voldemort, and they're the the Dumbledore's arm, and you know the 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 they the people on the left are Dumbledore's army, and you know, they were borrowing all these sort of analogies from Harry Potter. And I was like, all right, look, we get that you're in the age range where you grew up on that and you want to use that, but it became a little over much. Well, went from them using JK Rowling as their go-to source for political analogies to then saying, Oh, she's a transphobe and she's terrible and she's canceled or we're going to try to cancel her. They don't really have the power to cancel her. Uh, She's too much of a cash cow, but they, they made an attempt at it. So, and it was all because she, you know, made, I thought, a very reasonable and mild challenge uh, to the sort of transgender um, dogma that has, as you know, uh, sort of become a standard thing that everybody's enforcing that, you know, has happened in the last five years. And that's that's the weird character of it, is it's the sort of thing that you suddenly enforce as the ultimate thing that everybody has to endorse, and that everybody is a monster if they've ever contradicted, and it's something that nobody thought... Uh, more than five years ago. So like, you know, gay marriage. I mean, Barack Obama was against gay marriage up to 2012, <laughs> right? Uh, and then suddenly, you know, if you're against gay marriage, you're a bigot. Um, I, I'm i not, that's not particularly one of my issues, but it was this weird sort of whiplash. And the transgender thing is like that, it's, except it's even on a, maybe a, a shorter time scale. But in the last five years, you had to sign on to every little you know, every jot and tittle of, of the new orthodoxy on this, or else you're, you're a bigot and a transphobe and you're a terrible person. And these are ideas, you know, it, it's sort of like the old Marxist thing of the, of the, the party line that was, you know, subject to change at, 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 at without notice at any moment. Um, and you had to keep up with it and even contradict what you had said previously because the party line had changed. And it, it has a little bit of that characteristic to it that it's not so much an idea you're trying to convince people of as a loyalty test that people are required to pass. Right. And I mean, one of the things that I think that the leftists thought, I still see them continuing to say this. So I think they, they must believe it still to a certain extent, although maybe some of them are changing their minds. Was that like, if you just are not bad, then you won't get canceled. (laughs) If you don't want to be canceled, don't say evil things and don't think bad thoughts and you'll be fine. (laughs) I mean, do you you sort of see people changing their, their tune about that? Do you think people are sort of starting to be like, Oh, maybe that's not exactly how it works. 
<laughs> well, I, I think it, yeah, the arbitrariness of it and the the shifting uh, aspect of it, and like I said, somebody like J.K. Rowling going from being a hero to a villain in such a rapid uh, term, rapid uh, flip flop from one to the other. I think that really has some people thinking about it. Um, I think it's going to take a little while longer for this to for there to be the the real serious backlash. I think one of the things I'm waiting for, because I, I've been around long enough, I've sort of seen this happen, is that what you tend to have is people pick this up in college and you know the colleges and social media are hothouses for this sort of thing. And they, you know, their brains are filled with it and they never hear anybody reasonable uh, who they think or who they think is reasonable or respectable contradict it. And then what tends to happen is that changes over time. Over over time, people tend to not be as wrapped up in that you know, the, the influences that are promoting that and enforcing it tend to be to lessen. They tend to not be wrapped up in that. They tend to have life experiences that perhaps contradict the things that they were taught, and they have a tendency to move away from it. So we have like a super woke generation of kids in the last 10 years or so coming out of the colleges with this. And I'm sort of looking at the number of people who are inevitably going to do what you did, which is sort of drop out of that or question it or broaden their horizons a little bit more and say, wait a minute, maybe this isn't all correct. Maybe I need to revise it. Maybe I need to understand more about this. I I think that's a, there's a certain historical inevitability to that because I've seen it happen before in previous waves of, you know, there's a, a big hysteria and then at some point everybody and everybody goes along and sort of by so all the social pressure. And then eventually there's a backlash and people sort of drift away. And I think that's, uh, that, I mean, the conservative movement, I talked about the fusionist conservatives in the 1950s, a bunch of those people were communists in the 1930s, right? So it was the red decade, communism was the vogue. They were young intellectuals uh, who were enthralled by this ideal of communism and then a whole bunch of them had some moment of crisis. You know, they realized that Stalin was killing people or uh, that there was something that sh- shook their faith in, in communism. And a bunch of them ended up being, you know, some of the founders of the, the 20th century, late 20th century conservative movement. So Whitaker Chambers or um, uh, Norman Potteritz, who was a, a communist who became one of the founders of neoconservatism. So, that's sort of what I'm looking for is I think there's going to be that sort of natural migration uh, because you can't keep up. I mean, that having to say, Oh, never say anything bad, you know, right? and, and always put you know, <laughs> tuning your mind to, okay, what's the, what's the current thing that I have to say in order to be good. And what are the things I can't say in order to be bad? It's really exhausting. Um, something I'd recommend to you actually, as I, it came up recently, a couple interviews, I recommend his books, but there's a couple interviews with Natan Sharansky, who was a, uh, a Soviet dissident uh, back in you know in the 70s in Russia. And when he was, he was he's talking about Navalny, the, the guy who's currently in prison, uh, political prisoner now in Russia. And, you know, why would somebody like that speak up? Why would he take these huge risks? And he talked about how when you went from being, he calls a double thinker. Right. So you, you, in, in the Soviet system, you had to be a double thinker. You had your own private opinions that you kept to yourself. And then in public, you know, outwardly, you were a perfect communist uh, who mouthed all the right things. And you were always attuned to what are the things I'm supposed to be saying that will ma- keep me in good favor and keep me basically from going from losing my job or going to the gulag. And he says, so you think your life is a double thinker. You think one thing in private. And but another thing that you have is your outward display to keep yourself out of trouble. He says, when you go from that to being a dissident, 
when you suddenly decide, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to go through this exhausting effort of trying to figure out what is the pretense I have to put up in order to stay out of trouble. He says, it's so liberating. He says that being let out of jail 14 years later did not feel as liberating as when I simply decided I was going to say what I thought and say the truth no matter what. And I think that's going to be something we're going to see when you get something that's um, so cloistered and um, this sort of conformity of, of wokeness where never say anything bad. Remember that, you know, <laughs> how, how do you live like that? How do you live with this sort of this, con- this, uh, this, this thing hanging over you uh, all the time that maybe I might take a step wrong when you decide to say, you know what, I'm not going to worry about that anymore. I'm just going to say what I think is right and to heck with it. It's so liberating that that is a, a real um, inducement. You know, I, I, I make myself an advocate of liberalism in the, the broad sense. You know, Brasson said that in, in can encompass the center-left liberals and the libertarians and the classical liberals. And I think one of the themes I've been thinking about recently is that liberalism ultimately is epistemological. Liberalism is a way of thinking. And it's, it's a way of thinking in which you do not have the uh, – you basically decide you, – you are allowed to look at the world and decide what you think is true. And you don't have those oppressive limits of a dogma hanging over you saying you can't say this, you can't say that, you have to say this other thing over here. And that is the real liberation of liberalism. And everything else is – all, politi- all the politics and everything is a consequence of that. Right. So maybe I'm a liberal after all, and I've uh, sold myself out. <laughs> it seems to be the case. <laughs> um, Join us over here. It's fun. Oops. I mean, I, I mean, I would tend to agree. I, I sort of, I, I feel like um, I experienced that, you know, what you were just talking about, which is that I've never been particularly disinclined to not say what I think. I've always sort of been relatively incapable of not saying what I think. Um, But, uh, you know, once you stop, in my case, it was like once I sort of stopped feeling like I had to attach myself to these specific um, ideological boundaries and Mm -hmm. to specific political parties and to just the word the left and a leftist analysis um, and even a feminist analysis. And I could just start seeing issues and policy and ideas as they are and um, analyze them with like a critical mind as opposed to via a particular ideological analysis. It, it, It was very liberating. It's also very liberating to just, say what you really think. And it, it doesn't, it seems scary to people, but once you get past the barrier, it stops being scary because people, you can't, you can't really be canceled so easily if you just start saying what you think all the time, because people can't say, Oh, well, you're a leftist. You can't say that. And you can be like, well, maybe I'm not a leftist then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and there is something about that. I mean, Ayn Rand calls this the sanction of the victim, the idea that, at some point when somebody wants to do something bad to you, at some, at, at some point they search for your approval for it. Right. They use some sort of idea or concept of, you know, that you're, you're afraid to be bad in their eyes. So therefore they'll use something to intimidate you into somehow approving of your cancellation. Yeah. And that's why I, I cringe whenever I see, you know, somebody gets fired. This happened recently. There were some people who got fired from a very prominent, you know, widely listened to podcast 
And they then issued their groveling apologies for the bad things they had done. And, you know, of all the people I was following, nobody could really figure out what it was that they had actually done that was so bad. <laughs> the crime itself was so vague. Um, it, it's sort of like they were they were canceled for insufficient enthusiasm. Right. It seemed to be the upshot of it. But what made it really creepy was the sort of, you know, the Stalin show trial kind of conf- you know, forced confession aspect of it, where they all had to put out these statements apologizing for the terrible things they'd done and basically approving of their own cancellation. And I think that it, they, the cancel culture, I mean, when you say cancel culture doesn't just target the right, it targets the left. Actually, that is one aspect that I think it does tend to go for the soft targets. It tends to go for the people who agree with us or feel that they should agree with us or that they should be good, you know, leftists or liberals in good standing. Those are the soft targets because they're going to be the ones who will cave in at the first accusation because they're afraid of, uh, they're, they, they're sort of morally intimidated and, and don't want to don't, they don't want to fight back. Uh, you know, and it's, a, it's a, something I've observed um, that, you know, it's strange, sort of a perverse aspect that movements tend to attack the people who are closest to them more harshly than the people who are farthest away from them, right? Because the closer you are to them, the more that they are, feel they're entitled to expect absolutely 100% lockstep agreement. And so how dare you depart on this tiny little, you know, point of doctrine. Uh, (laughs) uh, And whereas if you're farther away, they kind of expect you to disagree on everything. So they're they're not as, you know, it's it's almost like they think, well, maybe I can convert him. And so they're actually nicer. They have this perverse tendency to be nicer to people who are farther away from them and and more demanding and and, uh, censorious about people who are who are seemingly closer to them. Right. Totally. And I mean, it's interesting that you say that because recently I've sort of been trying to figure out why, um, why feminists seem so much harder on one another than they do on almost anyone else, you know, and it is, it's, it's so rigid and limiting and so punitive and so bullying that I sort of, I'm like, why would a woman participate in this movement if you're going to treat her like this just because she doesn't want to vote for Biden or whatever it is, you know, you have to accept that. I mean, to me, I, I don't, I, I sort of have started saying like the women's movement or women's rights instead of saying feminism, because I feel like it's more specific and less ideological But to me, you know, the women's movement is about all women. So you're going to have to fight with and for, you know, most women aren't going to be like you. You know, most women in the world are not, you know, feminists. They're not leftists. They're just regular people trying to live their lives like most people are. I don't I don't really think most people in the world exist on one side of the political spectrum. I don't know that they really even think about it that much, or perhaps, you know, they hold a variety of views that don't fit tidily in any particular box. And when you're, when you're part of feminism or part of the left, or maybe part of the right, I'm just, I talk about feminism and the left because that's what I've experienced with. You sort of think that everybody does exist in these boxes because you exist in a box and because you treat the world as though it's, various boxes. So it's us versus them. They're the right. They're the neoliberals. They're the liberals. Um, They're the misogynists, whatever. Um, They're the liberal feminists versus the radical feminists. There's all sorts of other little categories too, right? Um, And I mean, 
Yeah, I guess I'm not sure exactly where I'm going with this, but I will say well, that well, once. Let me, let me. There's something you said in there that yeah. that touched something off of my mind, which is there is a and there is a, a a a corresponding aspect to cancel culture on on the right now, especially under Trumpism, where it's, it tends to be more oriented around one specific person. Right? If you're not pro-Trump, then you're bad. And uh, I mean, I got fired from a job a couple, three years ago um, because the publication I was working for went all in for Trump. And so I had to go out the door because I wasn't on board. Uh, so there's a little bit of that that goes on there. And I think that the the issue here is at putting people in boxes that expect them to all think the same. It comes down to the fact of to the big issue of individualism versus collectivism. Do you see people as individuals? Or do you see them as members of the group, the coll- primarily as members of the group or the collective? If you see them as members of the collective, then you expect them all to be alike and they'll all fall in line because we're all sort of the you know, cells in the giant superorganism of the collective. That's a that's a uh, a legacy of on the left. It's a legacy of Marxism, which was you know literally collectivist uh, that you know ev- that they, that uh, everything is done by society as a whole and the individual. It's just a cell in the super organism of, of society. You know, the worker is just, you know, the, the, is just serving the, the grand collective of the proletariat. On the right, it comes in a more nationalist form, right? The nation, uh, the, your culture, uh, uh, which generally, your, your culture basically means generally whatever the traditional culture of your country is or whatever they want to define it to be. That's what you're supposed to be serving. And if you don't fit that mold and if you think for yourself and have an individualist outlook, uh, they don't want to tolerate that because, you know, if, if if this grand collective scheme is what we're all for, then individuals shouldn't be acting, uh, making their own, drawing their own conclusions, seeing the world through their own eyes and having all their individual little preferences. They should all be alike. They should all be lockstep. Uh, we should all be wearing the same Mao suit, right? <laughs> and that's sort of the... Yeah, in the Chinese communist, the old Chinese communist thing, where they all wore this these sort of gray Mao suit, it, it was the outward manifestation of this kind of conformist, you know, conformity as a principle, conformity as a political principle, that as a good member of the collective, you should look and act and talk and speak exactly like every other member of the collective. Uh, and the great, so the great thing about being, you know, a liberal is I'm an individualist that I'm in, I don't expect all other liberals to act exactly and think exactly like I do. I want them all thinking for themselves, uh, and making their own decisions and, and seeing the world in their own eyes. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's the left and, and feminism is anti-individualist essentially. And, you know, I always thought that was a good thing because I thought that we were working towards the collective good. You know, I didn't want to just advocate for some individuals to feel good or to have wealth or to own property or whatever, but I wanted everyone to be okay, essentially, and be able to live with comfort and dignity and have access to everything that they needed to. But, you know, it, of course, goes way too far when, you don't want anyone to think differently or to stand out or to have a different opinion um, or where you simply sort of expect people to be like you. I mean, that's just not a very open-minded approach, especially coming from people who like to think of themselves as the non-bigoted people. Right, right. Well, you know, I think the issue here is of individualism versus collectivism there is that, you know, individuals can allow for things that you do for the good of everyone. It can allow for the common good in a very specific sense, which is 
you know, when people do have interests in common, they should be working together. Uh, but the idea, but the idea is that the goal is not the good of the collective as an entity itself. The good, the goal is the good of each person as an individual. And that, you know, the expectation is that at the end state is not that everybody's going to be alike, but everybody's going to be able to flourish as an individual making their own choices and, and doing their own thinking for themselves. And, you know, that's sort of the, uh, the, the individualist view, uh, the individualist version of the common good, right? Is that we, we work together and we have a government and we do certain things that in, cooperatively together, but that the ultimate goal is each of us as an individual being able to pursue our goals and, and, uh, and achieve our well-being and to decide what our goals are going to be uh, for ourselves. Right. Um, I, one of the things that I like that you pointed out in, in your article is that right-wingers have sort of made themselves uncancelable cancelable by starting their own channels and building their own platforms that aren't, um, this is your quote, of course, dependent on the yeah. kind of mainstream center-left liberal institutions that are now driving out the center-left li- liberals. Um, and I think, you know, that's the most wise thing that we can do. I mean, one of the the major problems for people on the left or for liberals right now is that they're being canceled by these, these institutions and these platforms and they sort of have nowhere else to go. They thought that these institutions and these platforms were going to support them. So they put all their eggs into that basket and now, now they're out. And um, I suppose though, I wonder you know, what about big tech? I mean, right-wingers, of course, I would assume Mm -hmm. are also dependent on platforms like Twitter and YouTube and PayPal and Patreon and Instagram and so on and so forth. Or perhaps they're not. Maybe they they don't have to depend on these kinds of social media platforms. I don't know. I I use a couple of those. Um, I'm very reluctantly on Twitter. I, I, I... I, I left it a huff a couple of years back uh, and then I got fired from the, the publication I used to work for. I said, okay, you know, I'm a freelancer now. I've got to get out there and, 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 you know, cause the, the American political media lives on Twitter 24 seven. So you have to be out there. Uh, I, I have mixed, very mixed feelings about Twitter. Cause I think it's a terrible, um, it sets a terrible example of how, how to have a discussion uh, on the whole. It's very easy for people to gang up against one another in sort of these sort of, almost like middle school clique kind of groups and uh, hound people. And the biggest problem with Twitter I see is that everybody's speaking not with an eye towards what do I need to say to the person I'm talking to, but with an eye towards playing to the crowd, right? So I'll dunk on this guy because then the crowd that I'm playing to over here will applaud me for it. And it creates this very sort of false and um, uh, unedifying kind of uh bad faith discussion that we have. But I will say, um, I think people overestimate how much they are dependent on the big tech companies because there are all sorts of different ways to do things. But I do think we need to think about building other institutions. Now, the problem we've had is the conservatives are are way ahead of this because they've done this. So I saw somebody mentioning that, you know, there's all these big conservative institutions that everybody knows in, in, in Washington, DC, big think tanks like the Cato Institute and the heritage foundation. And they went through this long list of them. And somebody pointed out all these things were formed from like the mid 1960s to the mid 1980s. 
there was a tremendous period of creativity and ferment of saying, you know, the, the mainstream institutions are blocking us out. So let's start our own institutions. They created all these amazing things. And some of those institutions have then, of course, become sort of, you know, uh, uh, scaled over by the bureaucracy and, and not very uh, not very effective anymore. And so maybe we need to create some new ones. But I think you have to have that attitude of when the big institutions block you out, create your own institutions. Now, the problem on the right is conservatives realized this problem about five years, six years ago with, with Twitter and social media and says, OK, we're going to form our own social media organizations that will be free speech platforms. Well, the problem is, so they formed Gab, and then later they formed Parler, and I think there are a couple other small, smaller ones. Well, Gab was an instructive example because they said, we're never going to kick anybody off no matter what you say. And so what happened is all the white nationalists and basically all the guys who like to read Stormfront for fun, uh, they all said, oh, great, we're going to go to Gab. And it became a hangout for racists and basically for the dregs. And I wrote a piece on, uh, you can find it on the bulwark called the Gresham's, where I talk about Gresham's law of the internet and uh, Gresham's law in economics is bad money drives out good. And on the internet, Gresham's law is bad postings drive out good. That if you have a platform that becomes dominated by the worst guys, nobody else is going to want to be on the platform. So it's just going to get even worse, right? It's going to become all the most reprehensible people you can find and no, nobody, none of the decent people who actually just want to have a discussion. So that's been the problem with the conservative approach to it. I actually think that a good alternative social media platform would be one that moderates its posts much more actively and much more strictly than Twitter does, but that does it in a way that is not biased and irrational because Twitter just makes dumb decisions. I mean, they, the problem with Twitter isn't that they moderate, it's that they do it badly and I think they do it badly because they're getting a, you know, they decide, well, we're going to do it in the cheap. So we're going to hire a bunch of these young kids straight out of college who are marinated in the woke ideology. And they're going to be totally biased and they're going to cancel people for, you know, trivial reasons or for ordinary reasonable disagreements. So it's not that they moderate, it's that they moderate badly. And I think that if you want to compete with Twitter or something or one of these other social media platforms, the best way to do it is to say, we're going to moderate even more actively. We're going to keep the riffraff out. We're going to, you know, the people who basically make the discussion worse, we're going to kick them off with regularity, but we're going to do it in an even handed unbiased, you know, where you're going to have to actually be a jerk to get kicked off. Uh, and, you know, Twitter's problem is you can be a jerk all you like, as long as you have the right ideas. And that, uh, that is what I think makes them susceptible to com competition. Now I'm hearing a lot about clubhouse these days and i don't know what that is but that's oh i just joined a few days ago i haven't started okay. using it but it seems like yeah. there's a lot of people who are joining who seem interesting to me so that's hopeful yeah i sort of looked at it as like okay there's another hour out of my day that i i don't i can't spare but well, maybe i'll check it yeah. out maybe i'll take my <laughs> twitter time and move media. it over there yeah. um but uh you know so there is a lot of competition i think that uh you know moderated moderated uh platforms that are formed where moderated are not as censorious where, where it's moderated more by, you know, like here's some one person who creates his own discussion group or bulletin board and serves as the moderator on it and does a good job and attracts a lot of people that has the potential to maybe be more influential in the political debate. Now, I also want to say that those of us who are interested in politics and these culture war things, we also tend to overestimate, what our role on Twitter is. You know, I think the political media thinks 
Twitter is hugely important because, you know, because they're all on it. And we don't realize that, you know, 90% of Twitter is, you know, what did, what did Taylor Swift have for breakfast today? Right. <laughs> That's what most of the people on Twitter are actually doing. Well, while we're, you know, if you look at the top 50 Twitter accounts, like there's like, there's like the president of the United States and like one other person, I think at, at the last, before they kicked off Trump, it was Donald Trump and Barack Obama, and basically nobody else from politics was in the top 50, 50 Twitter accounts. So I find you know, Twitter should go off there and you know, be for celebrities to, to overshare about their lifestyles. Uh, and Paul, the political discussion and all the uh, political obsessives should probably move somewhere else where they can have a more edifying conversation. Right. Fair enough. I mean, my, I'm just hoping that Twitter becomes irrelevant and that we can move somewhere else so that I can participate again. Um, <laughs> I actually, I didn't mind Twitter that much as far as, like, I don't love social media. I don't like Facebook. I don't really like Instagram. I can totally relate to your um, reaction to Clubhouse where you're like, another thing that I don't want to spend my time on. Um, but I mean, for me, I wish that, I suppose that I wish one thing Twitter would do would just be you know, consistent, uh, you know, like yeah. maybe let people know what their rules are so that they can choose to avoid breaking them if they like, um, mm -hmm. and have sort of a, a fair and, and transparent appeals process. You know, I think most people who are kicked off of Twitter, this happened in my case, they just get a form letter and you never yeah. really know what you did wrong. I know what tweets <laughs> they kicked me off for, but I don't actually, and I can guess what Twitter didn't like about those tweets, but I don't know. They've never told me. I still, yeah, it, it's like, as far as I'm aware, I didn't break any rule. You just, it has that Kafka aspect to it. Yeah. And I, totally. I think that's why, you know, go, go, go check out clubhouse. You know, let me know how, how, how it turns out because uh, I think we do need to be constantly in the search. Now, you know, my, again, uh, having been around a while, I mean, I, I'm so old that the, when I was a kid, the internet, internet didn't have pictures. Yeah, it was just text. Uh, and uh, um, so I've seen these things rise and fall. I mean, I, I, I did a funny article a while back about, you know, talking about antitrust and people are like, oh, you know, such and such a company dominates the, this area. And it's like, well, I remember Facebook. I remember, I remember America Online. There was a whole hysteria about how America Online is going to control everything in 20 years. And so it doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, so, you know, these, these, these tech companies, these platforms, especially social media platforms, they're extremely ephemeral. I mean, it's really, you know, you exist because a lot of people decided they just wanted to show up of their own free accord and they could all leave again tomorrow and you would completely disappear. And so I think that's what we sort of, I think the dysfunctional thing that's happened specifically is that the entire American political media basically lives on Twitter 24-7. And so Twitter ends up having, you know, it doesn't matter what people say on Twitter so much, but what they say on Twitter ends up having an influence on what happens in the New York Times and the Washington Post and on CNN. And, you know, it, the, the, it shapes the attitudes and the kinds of stories and the way things are told in a bunch of these other institutions that are influenced by it. And I think that if all of American political media sort of got siphoned off and went somewhere else and had hopefully a more edifying conversation, that it would be a, it would be an improvement. Right. Um, so one of the main things that I liked about your article, um, like I, I shared it on Facebook um, and, uh, you know, I, I like that you talked about alliances and forming alliances um, forming coalitions. 
and you you pointed out that the reasonable people on the right will have to form more permanent alliances with pro-free speech liberals. Um, it seems to me like almost everyone is willing to form alliances and coalitions except for people on the left who have doubled down even more on <laughs> you know, their refusal to speak to or engage with or form alliances with people who they view as their political enemies. So anyone on the right. Um, I, I suppose I wonder, and that's what I wrote when I posted your article on Facebook. I was like, look, everyone else is doing it except for you guys. <laughs> 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 and I, I mean, do you, I wonder if you think that that will hurt the left. I mean, I would tend to think that if everyone else is able to form alliances here and there on particular issues that are of importance um, or form coalitions, that if the left continues to be so rigid and dogmatic and will only work with others who are exactly like them and agree with every single point, um, that they won't be able to get very far. But I don't know. Well, so I, I, you know, in my dreams, the dream result would be we'd actually see a grand political realignment in America and hopefully in Canada and elsewhere, you know, in sort of the Western world, a grand political realignment where instead of left versus right, which is always kind of a strange and an artificial differentiation, instead of left versus right, we would have, I was, I'd put it liberal versus a liberal. And so, you know, somebody like me, who's a radical free marketer and somebody who's likes a little more regulation in a welfare state, we could still get together and say, look, we want to have a free society. We want to talk about these things rationally and use persuasion and, and not just shout each other down. And that, that, the, that sort of core liberalism is what we have in common and we can work out our differences and everything else uh, in, a, in a calm and rational way and form this coalition. And then let the uh, uh, let the hardcore nationalist conservatives and the uh, hardcore sort of communists or, or socialists uh, and intolerant left they can go as a small faction off there and they can go scream into the void um, because you know if 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 I do think there is this wide sort of middle of people who are vaguely liberal in that sense and if we could all see that we're in the same boat together and join forces it would be probably the the dominant major, overwhelming majority of people. And then you could refocus the political discussion in ways that might be more, uh, more useful uh, and, and less angry. But uh, what happens is the old coalitions have their pull that the, uh, that, that when you've been in a co political coalition like that, you sort of still have the people on the, the, on the far out crazy fringes of the, of that coalition are still there in your head. Right. And they're still sort of scolding you and making you feel bad for having broken with them. And there's sort of the, the, the conscience. Uh, they're still there in your conscience, uh, making you sort of intimidating you. And also because I think people don't necessarily question the the fundamental ideas. You know, so they will they will break with um, uh, with you know, the Trumpian conservatism. But they don't want to think about, well, what was, what was it in the conservative ideas that caused, made this possible? What do I maybe have to challenge or reevaluate? Uh, and I think the big one is this issue I brought up of individualism versus collectivism. I think that's the primary reason why 
the sort of the far left and the nationalist right, why these have such a big hold on people who are not necessarily committed to their ideas, but they're committed to the idea that, uh, you know, if you're on the left, they're committed to the idea that, you know, socialism and the, the ideal of socialism, the ideal of the collective having control over everything, that still has a lot of pull on them intellectually. And they have to re sort of rethink, well, fundamentally, was there something ideologically that I have to challenge about the ideas of the left that I, that I came up with? And similarly with the, uh, you know, a lot of conservatives were very deeply imprinted by, you know, illiberal and, and of different kind of collectivist views uh, among on sort of the religious conservative side. Uh, this idea that we, you know, we all have to be uh, working to uh, have a, a religious country, a, a country that has one dominant religion that everybody is subservient to. And they need to question, you know, uh, fully question and, and free themselves from that. But I think that's sort of that that pull of those two those wings keeps people in who are who are who could be working with each other much more effectively keeps them from coming together and keeps them arguing over you know the the sort of the cult, some of the culture war and some of the uh, economic and political debates that 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 separate them instead of looking at what uh, they have in common. Right. Um. Well, I. I suppose that's a possible, I was like, I don't know if we've come up with the solution, but I mean, it seems like you've come up with a solution. <laughs> I think it's just sort well, of I, I've come up with what I hope will be the solution, but you know, making it actually happen <laughs> and getting people to sign on to it. It's a whole other whole. I think it's, it's the beginning of a very long-term process. Yeah. I mean, I suppose like my main thing is just trying to get the, the people who I was once allied with to support free speech. So that's like the main hurdle for me is like, this is important, <laughs> you know, and I still haven't gotten there yet. So it's hard for me to move beyond that when people won't support like basic freedoms and rights. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for, for coming on. I, I'm, I'm, I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. I really enjoyed it. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode and are enjoying the other interviews and the content we're producing, please do consider becoming a patron. Just head over to patreon.com slash Megan Murphy and sign up. Five, ten, twenty-five bucks a month. It all helps. Thank you so much. We'll catch you next time on The Same Drugs with Megan Murphy.